John chapter 6, verse 51. Jesus is speaking, and he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said to them, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve, was going to betray him. That sounds loud already. Are we good? I'm scared. <clears throat> well, we're, we're ending chapter six today, and it feels like we've been in this chapter a long time. We, this is the fourth week, and it's, it is a really long chapter. Um, and it ends talking about Judas, it says the last words are, was going to betray him. So this, this chapter starts off really high, really exciting, and then we end here, and I think today, uh, as, as hearers, as readers of this passage, we have two options emotionally, uh, how, how this affects us, how we feel about this passage. Um, we're either depressed and sad, uh, or, or think that we can be comforted and, and hopeful. So maybe we're depressed be, because it looks like the circumstances for Jesus just keep getting worse. And for the people, they, they do not believe. They won't accept Jesus' teaching. 
Um, there, there was a crowd of maybe 15, 20,000 people at the beginning of the chapter, and now we dwindle down to, to just the 12 disciples and Jesus. So, so we, could, we could be, we could feel just, ugh, as we end this chapter. Or, or I think that we could actually feel comforted and encouraged that Jesus is in control of everything here. That even though there's great resistance to the gospel, Jesus is at work. The Father is at work. He's drawing people to himself to believe. And this, this entire chapter shows Jesus doing what he needs to do in the different circumstances, that he is in control along the way. It starts off, the crowd, 15, 20,000 people maybe, um, they need food. So Jesus caters dinner. Right? He, he makes it happen out of, out, of, out of a few loaves and some fish. He multiplies enough food for them. Then shortly after that, the disciples, they leave, they're on the boat, the wind come, the waves come, they, they're stuck, they can't get through it. And, and Jesus just strolls along the water, right? Maybe like you walk to your refrigerator to get a snack, like nothing. He's not phased at all by the circumstances and then Jesus teaches, the crowd follows him, the, the, Jesus teaches, and they will not accept what he's saying. Right? They, they, don't, they don't understand why they need him. They don't believe that he's from heaven. They, they thought that what they'd been doing was, was working out for them, that their religious categories were, were just fine. And eventually they leave him, and it's just the twelve that remain. And then even one of the twelve is a traitor. Right? He, he, he's fake. He, he, he looks the part. He, I'm sure he prayed well in front of others. He seemed sincere, but he's faking it, and everybody's fooled except for Jesus. But in fact, Jesus is in control. He, he knows what Judas is going to do. It was not an accident even what Judas would do this betrayal is actually in God's hands, and it, it, it's what will lead Jesus to the cross. And I know the cross isn't a part of this passage, but, but even in the cross, like if you'd never heard the story of Jesus before, and you hear that he's Messiah, and then you get, get towards the end of this book, and you read that, that the Messiah's dying on the cross, that doesn't make any sense. How could the Savior be crucified? And, and yet the resurrection shows, no, God's firmly in control of all of this. He's working to give life to those who will believe in Jesus. Let's pray before we go any further. Lord, we need you. God, I need you right now to speak. I feel like there's at least a couple things in this passage that, that are hard to explain. So Holy Spirit, would you, would you give me words that are good? Lord, if there's words I haven't thought of yet that that would be helpful. Would you, would you help us in that? God, would you help us to wrestle through hard things, not just today, but as we walk with you? God, would we trust? Would we know, Lord, that you're good? And that even when things don't make sense, even when circumstances are hard, would we trust that, that you are, in fact, at work? You know exactly what you're doing, God. Jesus, would we respond to you in faith? It's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Well, in following God, you have to be okay with mystery to some degree. Um, God doesn't, he does not reveal everything to us. And I think part of that, scripture tells us part of that is um, because we, we couldn't even handle, like if he revealed himself to us fully, we could not handle it. Moses, if, if you remember, 
Right? You want to see God's glory, and God says, oh, you, you can't handle all of it. I'm going to give you this little tiny glimpse. I'm going to, I'm going to put my hand over you so, so you don't see the full effect. But Moses would have died if, he'd, if, if God had allowed him to see all of his glory. Um, a few years ago, I got to go on one of the trips to Haiti uh, to this orphanage called Rivers of Hope. Um, Paul was with me on that trip. I, I don't know if anyone else here was on that trip, but we, we got to go and serve at this orphanage in Haiti. And uh, the night before we actually got to go to the orphanage, we, um, we met with, uh, they had a, a pediatric physical therapist that had been there like six or eight months. And she was absolutely incredible. And the night before, she kind of gave us this um, a miniature class on what we needed to know to serve these kids well, to, to be helpful and developmentally where they were and all that. Um, and one of the most helpful things uh, from that time was she told us what day one was going to look like for these kids. She said that when we walked into the room, the kids, uh, and these kids were like birth to I think three or four. So when we walked into the room, the kids were just going to be stunned, right? Not that they'd never seen white people before. Plenty of white people come into this orphanage and help out. Uh, but they were, they were going to just be stunned. And the reason was their brains were taking in so much information, right? The, the, they're nearly on overload. So all they would do is just like sit and stare at us. And she was totally right. But then she said, eventually, they're going to warm up. And then they're going to go from warm up to play really, really hard with you. And sure enough, man, all of a sudden, there's kids all over me. I remember at one point, I was like sitting like this, and like three kids lining up. And I told them we were a bobsled team. I'm sure they had no idea what that meant. Um, but, but they were going hard, and they were having fun. And then she said, they're, they're going to start falling asleep anywhere and everywhere. And you're like, what? And, and sure enough. Like, just all over the room, someone took a picture of it. There's just kids, like, sleeping on, sometimes on toys, like, in just weird spots. No, not a bed, but just on the floor. And she said, they're going to take in so much stimulation in that first day with you that their, their brain is going to say, you're done. You can't handle anymore. Your body's going to shut down, not shut down, but go to sleep so, so that you can't take in anymore. Like, we have limits what we can handle, right? And God, in, in, his, in his wisdom, knows that we can't handle all that he could give us. We can't handle him revealing everything to us. My guess is, actually, I'm, I'm confident that, that it's going to take us all of eternity just to take in who God is, right? To, to hear uh, of his wisdom and how he unfolded things through, throughout history, so, so in his wisdom, he only reveals so much to us. And, and in scripture, we come across mystery after mystery after mystery. And, and for me, when I see mysteries that in scripture about God, about us, that I just can't, I can't add everything up, my fallback is I know God is good. And I think this is actually one of the most valuable assets I have in fallen Christ is I know that God is good. Even when things are hard, when there's things that I don't understand, when there's stuff in Scripture maybe that, that I don't like, I, I know, I fall back on, okay, I don't get it, God. But I do know, I know you're good. If you're following Jesus and you don't know that God is good yet, that's going to make things hard. Right? We, need, we need to know that God is good. So in this passage, we, we've seen, and maybe for some of you, perhaps it's been a struggle, and, and really actually this has been throughout John, is God's sovereignty in salvation. 
that, that God's not, not just working to bring about belief and new birth, but, but that God chooses. And this is something for a, a lot of Christians, at least in America, this is, this is hard for us. Let me, let me just pull out a couple of verses from, from just chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all he's given me. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Verse 70, did I not choose you, the 12? So, so we talk, we, we use words like election, predestination, God's foreknowledge. Scripture is really upfront that, that God is the one that brings about life. Right, that, that God is the one that does that. But he's also, Scripture's also really up front that God, God chooses, God determines, God, God, God predestines people to, to follow him, to believe in him. Scripture's also clear that we respond, that somehow we have genuine choice in what God has decided and, and, and done. Um, Philippians 2.12, I'll pick up halfway through the verse, it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work. Work out your own salvation, for it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 1 Corinthians 15.10, halfway through the verse, On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that's within me. So Paul was, is it? Like, is, is God at work, or, or are you at work? And, and discussions around this topic, are, they're hard. I mean, they're, they're camps based on, you know, the different positions here. And, and I think a lot of us, maybe all of us, are okay with God having influence in helping people decide, but we don't like, we don't like that God would choose or, or, or determine um, for someone to believe. And, and then if that's the case, then it's, it's confusing. Like, so if God's choosing, then how, how do I have a genuine choice? How, how do I respond? Because that's what Scripture says. We, we love neat categories, right? Even the most free-flowing person in here, like there's certain things that you're a little OCD about, and you like them to fit in these little tight boxes. And yet, I find that very little in life fits into a nice little box. And, and, and certainly, certainly this doesn't fit into a nice little category or box. And it brings up questions, many of which I'm not even going to attempt to answer today, but love, like if, if this stirs up something in you and you want to talk, I'd love to talk with you. Gary would love to talk with you. Dan would love to talk to you. Our staff, we'd, we'd love to help you wrestle through these things with scripture together. But so some of those questions. So how can we have a choice if it's determined by God? Or if, if God chooses people to believe, doesn't that mean he also chooses people to reject him? If God's predestined, then why, why would we share the gospel? If God's determined, then, then why would, would we pray? And I do want to talk about that for a moment. So not only is God determined that, that someone would believe, but he's predestined that. He's also predestined that someone would share the gospel. He, he's predestined that, that someone would pray for that person. What are we praying? Uh, I think Acts 16, 14 is a great example this is what happens in Lydia. It says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So I, I, think, uh, I think that sometimes we're, we're not comfortable with this, it, it, with, with God deciding 
um, that someone will respond. It feels fake to us or, or it's hard for us, admittedly, to, to understand how this could be a genuine response. And it's almost as if it, I, I think some people feel like it robs the beauty of new birth in Christ. Um, and I was thinking about um, dance. I, it's, it is well documented I cannot dance. I wish I could. I think dance is so beautiful. That show, So You Think You Can Dance. I don't know if anybody's a fan. I love it. <laughs> I love that show. I feel so dorky admitting it every time. But I love that show. And, and there's times on that show where um, uh, they have to like dance for their lives. Um, and it's, I, I think it's usually not choreographed. It's uh, impromptu, I guess is what you call it. Um, and, and it's cool, for sure. Um, but none of those dances hold a candle to the dances that are choreographed, to the dances that have been rehearsed and, and, and practiced. Right? You, you've never gone to a movie and, and thought, oh, that's not spectacular. They had a script. The actors had lines. They, they rehearsed that. They, they, they had a director telling them what to do. So we have that God determines and, and, and we respond. And, and it seems like these two things like don't go together. Do I fully understand? No. Um, years ago, I saw a video on YouTube about light. Um, obviously, I am not a scientist. I'll do my best to explain what this video is about. Um, it, it, scientists uh, see that, um, that, that light behaves both as particles and waves. I'm not even going to try to explain what that means, okay? But both as particles and waves, and it doesn't make sense that this happens. This is what the videos tell me. Uh, it doesn't make sense that, that a light can be, behave as a particle, uh, but also as a wave, and, and, and they, they don't understand how this goes together. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't add up the way it should, and yet they recognize that this is how it is. And maybe someday scientists will figure out what's going on, right? Maybe someday we'll go, oh, that's how it works. But right now, they don't. They just accept that this is how it is. And, and I think there are a lot of things in Scripture like this one where it says, says God chooses, and it says we respond. And I don't, I can't quite see exactly how that lines up, and yet I trust, in this mystery, I trust that God is good. If you want to talk later, let's talk. <laughs> now we'll get into the passage. And I'm, I'm going to pick up in verse 51. Jesus says, I'm the living bread that, that came down from heaven. Sorry, first, I told you all that because I think we can take great comfort in God's sovereignty and salvation. That's what all that was about. Like, I, I hope, I hope that maybe by the end of the day, maybe weeks from now, like, you can take comfort in that. Back to verse 51. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And over and over again in, in, uh, in this passage, but even in John, Jesus uses, he uses the words life and living. Repeatedly, life and living. So one thing that I almost feel like I've missed as I've been diving into this passage for weeks now is, man, life is possible, right? That, 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 that we don't have to remain dead in sin, that, that death doesn't have to be the end of this life. This is really, really good news that there is hope. Um, a little while back, I, uh, I talked to two different people that, that I, I barely know, but, but I have kind of a, an acquaintance relationship with each, each of them. Um, 
totally separate from each other, and, and each of them had had a family member like tragically die. Tragically die. One, uh, one was in an accident, and, and the other, I think, was, was sick, and they didn't know like the, uh, the cancer in their body was even happening, and, and then they died within a couple days of, of, of recognizing that they were really sick. And uh, so with, with the one, I mean, both families just mourning just grieving the loss uh, of, of this family member that, that all of a sudden was gone. But, but one family knew Jesus, and, and there was a difference to their mourning. And the other family, you, you could just feel the, the hopelessness that they're dead. This is, this is it. And, and you could see, like, man, they, they knew there should be something more. And Jesus says, life is possible. Praise God that, that there is hope, that this isn't everything. Like Even on my best day in life, there, there's always this longing for a world that's not corrupted by sin. Uh, knowing that, that someday God's going to make all things right. And Jesus says that, that this life is in, it's in him and it's eternal life. He says that if you eat me this living bread, meaning like if you, if you take me in, so not just like Sunday time with Jesus, not, not an acquaintance type relationship with Christ, but you take Jesus into your life. Later in the passage, he, he uses the word abide. He says, I'll abide in you, you'll abide in me. So, so if you have this relationship with Jesus like this, it leads to eternal life. And obviously this is, this is the best news. This is the best news. And Jesus, he's saying in this passage, there's no other way. There's, there's no other way but through him. No human effort. No other savior. You can't like stack up a bunch of good deeds and try and outweigh your sin. You have to know and trust Jesus. You have to receive Jesus on his terms. And his terms are belief. Right? That you'll have faith that you'll trust that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't only necessary, but it was also sufficient to pay for your sin. That's the only option. Jesus says he gives his life. He gives his life um, for the world. And, and, and this bread that he gives, it's his flesh. He gives himself. He hasn't withheld anything from us. Jesus wants to be clear. We see that in the passage. He wants to be clear, even though people are uncomfortable, even though they're confused, they get, they get angry some, but Jesus wants them to know what is true. Verse 52, it says, The Jews then disputed, or they're warring in their words, they're quarreling among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So they're, they're stuck thinking literally, right? Like we've seen so often in John. They're, they're thinking earthly, which obviously makes sense. They're from earth. But, but Jesus, over and over again in John, we see that, that if we're stuck thinking earthly, we're going to miss spiritually what Jesus is talking about, the life that, that he, he gives. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat, or, or that word could be like devour, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds, right, like chewing, like gnawing, uh, Gypsy made a weird face. Sorry, Gypsy. Uh, on my flesh and drinks my blood. Remember, it's a metaphor. Um, uh, and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. She says, this is the only way to life. You, you got to take me in. And he, he doesn't back off. Like he just he pushes in harder, 
when people don't understand, when there's resistance, he just, he keeps going, he says, unless you eat the bread, unless you drink the cup, it's impossible for you to have life. Meaning, not that you will be dead, but you're presently dead apart from me. There's no other way to life. So what, is, what does he mean by eat and drink the cup? And we've said this several times in the last couple of weeks, but it's, it's taking Jesus in, right? It's not, it's not Jesus like on the outskirts of your life, like, like on the periphery. It's not even Jesus being the center of your life, but it's Jesus permeating all of your life, all of who you are. Um, I, uh, I've gone to Hood River a couple times over the last few summers, and I love watching the kiteboarders. I don't know if you know what kiteboarding is, but they basically have like this miniature surfboard attached to their feet, and this, this kite it looks like a small parachute, and they're catching the wind, and they're zooming around fast, and they, they catch air sometimes. It looks to me like they're flying like 15, 20 feet in the air, and it's, it is amazing if you've never gone to Hood River to watch this. It's so fun, um, but as much as I love watching that, I, I enjoy, like, so they have a staging area where they're getting all ready, getting all their crazy gear, um, and then the parking lot is right there. And it's incredible to see the vehicles and how they've modified them so that they can do this sport that they love. Like there's, it's not that the vehicles are awesome by any means, but they've, they've transformed what was like a normal vehicle into this kite boarding oasis, right? That, that they can not, not just drive and go kiteboarding, but like I think they live in the thing sometimes. Some of them looked like they lived in their vehicle for a while so that they could kiteboard, right? They, they'd rearranged life because they loved this sport. Do we arrange our lives around Jesus? Or are we more apt to rearrange our lives uh, around our career or or a relationship, um, or, or whatever goal we have. We, we rearrange our lives around addictions, even, even habits, but does Jesus permeate our lives? Verse 54 also gives assurance that, that Jesus will follow through on what he's promised, right? He, he, he says those who put their faith in Jesus will be raised up on the last day. It's a guarantee that we'll be with Jesus, our Savior. We'll not experience the wrath that, that we deserve for sin. If we put our faith in him, God will not be stopped from giving life to those who place their faith in Christ. Praise God. Verse 55, for my, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and, and drinks my blood abides. And that word could, could mean remain, or you could think of it as stay or dwell. So whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks my blood, abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. He says, my, my flesh is the true food. My blood's the, the true drink. And, and, and he'll, he'll contrast that in first, verse 58. But man, do we, do we feast on Jesus? Do we, do we feed on Jesus? Do we devour Jesus? When, when we come to Jesus, do we eat like we are famished, like we desperately need this meal. He says that there's this mutual abiding that he'll abide in us, we'll abide in him. Are you abiding in Jesus? Does Jesus abide in you? Have you made yourself at home in Christ? Is Jesus more like a guest in you? Or does he reside in you? 
have you just set up like this, this makeshift cot for Jesus and, and, and kind of a bedroom that's more like a closet for him? Or have you given him free reign in your life where, where he could just go to the pantry, so to speak, and get whatever he wants? Because he, he lives in you. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He says, your fathers, they ate the manna, that was from heaven, that was from God, but, but it didn't lead to eternal life, right? It sustained them, but eventually their bodies died. Right? They're the ones, they, they followed the law hoping it would give life, and it didn't give life, but it pointed to their need for the Savior, right? Their need for Jesus who would fulfill the law, who would give life. Verse 59, Jesus said these things, in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So when it says disciples, it's not talking about the 12. It's talking about the, just kind of a general description of, of the crowds, the people that had been following Jesus. And, and Jesus teaching in the synagogue. And this was, this was not a seeker-sensitive uh, sermon. Right? The audience did not like what he was teaching. They're, they're murmuring back and forth with one another. Who, who can listen to this? And the, the audience is finally figuring out, okay, that's a metaphor. Like Jesus isn't literally talking about eating his flesh and, and drinking his blood. That was hard enough to believe, but in some ways, what he's asking them to believe, now that they know it is a metaphor, that's even harder for them to swallow. Pun fully intended there. Thank you, three of you. Um, so belief among the crowd, among these people, it's at an all-time low, right? It's, it's now down to just the disciples. So what will Jesus do here in verse 61? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Again, like Jesus pushes in. He confronts what's going on. I, for the most part, am a let's not rock the boat kind of guy. If I, was a Christ, if I wasn't a Christian, I would never rock the boat. Right? But because of Christ, like I realize now we got to get uncomfortable sometimes. Jesus has no problem. He just keeps pushing in. He says, do you take offense at this? Right? And that word offense means to trip up or, or to stumble. And maybe, maybe that reminds you of 1 Corinthians 1.23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. It is no wonder that people reject the gospel. Like we're told, it's a stumbling block. It is foolishness to this world. Verse 62, then, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, right? They, they could not believe that he was the bread come down from heaven. What if you saw the Son of Man go back to where he was before? Verse 63, it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. So there's this contrast. The spirit gives life. The flesh does nothing. The flesh is absolutely incapable. You can't make yourself right with God. You can't earn salvation. It's the spirit that brings about life. And the crowd's assessment of Jesus' words were, this is hard. This is hard to hear. This is hard to accept. Who can believe and obey this? And Jesus says, actually, my words are spirit and life. By the work of the Holy Spirit in a person, the, the words of Jesus, they bring life. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, who did not believe and who it was who betray him. And you know this. 
The reality is not everyone will trust in Jesus. Not everyone will have life through Jesus. Jesus knew who, who, who wouldn't believe, who was going to betray. We don't know. We don't get to see into people's hearts. Often, by the time we know what God's doing, it's, it's pretty well done, right? We're, we're, we're usually pretty late to figuring things out. But sometimes it seems like there are so few people that believe in Jesus as their Savior, and it's tempting. I mean, we live in a part of the country where so few people believe in Jesus, where so few people are even willing to step into a church. And the temptation is to be discouraged by that. Verse 65 He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to the Father unless it's granted by the Father. That God is in control. God is bringing life to people. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus was really clear about the terms. And what was once this substantial crowd was reduced to 12 people in Jesus. They were enamored with his healing powers. They, they loved the signs that he did, but, but they, they could not accept what he taught. They, they couldn't accept that they needed to have faith in him to have life. So I wonder, what was the impact on the 12? As they, they, they saw Jesus, his height of popularity, right? In 6, I don't know if you remember this, but the people realized Jesus is gone. He's on the other side of the the sea, they hop into boats to go find him, right? Like they just wanted to be near him. They wanted to hear. They wanted to see what Jesus would do next. And now it's just them and Jesus, just the disciples and Jesus. What was the impact on their faith when virtually everyone had left? What's the impact on your faith when it seems like person after person rejects the gospel when person after person says, it's, it's, it's just too hard for me to believe that God would come down and be human. Or it's too hard for me to believe that, that the Bible could be true. It's too hard for me to believe that, that Jesus could possibly have raised from the dead. It's too hard for me to believe that I'm really that bad and that I need someone to pay for my sin. How does that affect you? Do our actions show that we are hopeful that, that there are some that will respond to the gospel, as Scripture says. God's determined that more will respond to the gospel. God's not done yet. Jesus would come back and take us if he was done yet. So there are more that will respond to the gospel. I read once that it's kind of like going fishing. Um, you're going fishing to a place you've never been before, and you hear about this old-timer in town who's lived there his whole life. He's fished the river like 40, 50 years. So you go and pick his brain, and he's happy to share with you. And he says, oh, yeah, I'll tell you where to go fishing. Here's what you need. He makes sure, he makes sure you have the right gear. And he says, you need to hit this fishing hole and this hole and that riffle. And I'm telling you, if you fish those, you're going to catch fish. There's no doubt. If you fish those holes, you will catch fish. So, so the question isn't, will I catch fish? Right? He's saying that, that's a guarantee. I guess the first question is, will I actually fish? Will I believe that this old guy knows his stuff? And then the question is, how many fish will I catch? People will respond to the gospel. There are people that will respond globally. There are more Christians in the world right now than at 
any other point in history. Um, uh, quick little plug for the perspectives class. There's a perspectives class. I think it's called Perspectives on the Christian World Movement. It's coming, I think, in September. There's going to be one in Vancouver. Several people from this church have been through it. But it is a really, really helpful way to understand globally what God is doing. Because sometimes when we're stuck here in Camas, Vancouver, Washougal, wherever else you might live, um, it, it's hard to see what God's doing. And, and, and sometimes that's really discouraging to us. But God is bringing life to people. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And he wasn't asking this question because he didn't know the answer. He asked this question for the benefit of the disciples. Right? He's using this to refine their faith in him. Jesus doesn't waste anything. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed. We've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Who, who else, what else compares to you, Jesus? You alone speak the words that lead to eternal life. He confesses, you're, you're the Holy One of God. He says, Jesus, you're, you're unique. There's no one like you. The, the physical laws of this universe don't apply to you. You're not dependent on any created thing like the rest of us are. In Matthew 16, 17, Matthew records that, that Jesus tells Peter when he confesses this, he said, the Father revealed that to you. There's no way you can know that on your own. The Father revealed that to you. So the disciples, they believe. Like more and more, we're beginning to see the disciples' belief is, is growing. They're, they're trusting Jesus. They don't fully understand even what Jesus just taught um, yet. And later in John makes that clear. But, but they're beginning to believe in Christ. They're beginning to believe his words. Even though no one else believes, he says, we believe Jesus. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? John and Jesus, they've both been really clear. This is, this is God that does the choosing. God's, God's at work here. She says, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. Or sorry, a devil. Um, he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve and was going to betray him. It seems bizarre if you know the story. Like Judas is not about to betray him yet. So why in the world does John bring up Judas here? Why in the world does Jesus say this? already. Um, and, and I think, and I mean, I ripped this off from scholars. I didn't come up with this on my own. But it, I think it's because John's showing God is in total control, even in what Judas is doing, even in what seems to be horrible. It seems like it'll mess up everything. God is in total control. Our truth statement for today is no matter how great the opposition is to the gospel, God's in control. He's at work bringing people to Jesus for eternal life. No, no, matter, no matter how much opposition there seems to be, we can trust that God's at work, that God is bringing life into people that will believe in him. So in this chapter, we've gone from 20,000 people, which is almost the size of, of Camus that just dawned on me last night, right? Like, imagine, like, all of Camus, like following after God, running after God, and then that crowd dwindles down to, to just the 12. It's easy to be excited and committed to Jesus in the large crowd. It's easy to sing loud, to raise your hands maybe when, when you're next to a person who believes. But what about when you're in the classroom and you're one of 
a few believers, and maybe you're the only believer you know of, or at work and on your team, you're it. You're the only one who professes faith in Jesus. Or maybe, maybe in your family or your neighborhood, wherever, you are it. And I want to tell you that God has providentially placed you there. You don't know what God is going to do. You don't know how he's going to move in hearts. But he's positioned you right where he wants you. And I know um, we, have, we have families uh, where... Uh, you have you have kids that, that have grown up and they've rejected Jesus. Um, and that's got to be so hard. But I want to tell you this. God put that kid in a family with parents who are faithfully praying for Jesus, faithfully praying for them to respond. Right? God's done that on purpose, that, that he has, has put that kid in your family knowing and stirring in you to pray for him. And I hope you know, like as a staff, we're praying. There's kids we know about that aren't following Jesus. Elders, we're, we're praying. But, man, God's put you there. We, we've, had, we've had students come to Christ, and they're the, first, um, they're the first person in their family to trust in Jesus. And that's beautiful. It's also really, really hard. I'm thinking of one student just the other day. I think he's been following Jesus about seven years. No one in his family has responded yet to Christ. And yet, we know, like God's, God's put him there, right? He is light in that family. And because God has put him there, there's hope that God, maybe that's where God's working. We will, we will catch fish, right? but, but we've got to cast. We've got to share Jesus. I want to close with Romans uh, chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him? in whom they have not believed? How do they believe in him in whom they never heard? How do they hear without someone preaching? Like We have to share Jesus. We have to share the good news of the gospel. We're going to take communion during these next songs. And we can't help but think of this chapter as we take the bread and the cup. And this chapter isn't about communion. I think communion is about what this chapter speaks of, though. We're acknowledging as we take the bread and the cup, we're acknowledging that, that we're, we need to eat the bread of life, that we need to drink his blood, that Jesus has given himself fully to us so that we can abide in him, he can abide in us. So if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior, come during the songs, come and, and receive the elements, and, and then when, when you want to, you, you can take them. If you want prayer for anything, our prayer team's going to be uh, in the foyer back there. We'll open the doors for you. And, and it, could, it could be something that feels really small and insignificant, but you want prayer for it, um, or something huge. Um, and, and you don't have to tell the whole story either, like to go get prayer. Like you could be pretty vague, and that's okay. Like God's the one that needs to know. The prayer team person doesn't need to know. So I if you're like, man, I don't want to go through the whole thing, you can just go back there and say, hey, I need prayer for this hard thing in my life. And they'll pray. Like, they don't need to know everything. I'm going to pray right now. Jesus, Lord, we, we need you, God. You're the only one that offers life. There's no hope. There's no hope apart from you, Lord. God, thank you that you open the eyes of the blind. My guess is that most of us in here have put our faith in you, Lord, that, that you, 
You've opened our hearts to you. you. You've brought about new births. We, we have life in you now, Jesus. God, would we trust that you are at work, that you're on the move, Lord, that you're bringing life in others. Lord, I pray for, for all those family members or friends that, that people are thinking about right now, that, that they just want them to trust in you, Jesus. Would you move in their hearts, God? Would you bring life, God? Would, would they respond to you in faith, Lord? It's in your name we pray.